You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. But also just talking with other grad workers around campus, hearing what they have to say, and trying to incorporate that into thinking about, you know, our mission and how we can serve grad workers across campus. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Kaya Tara reports on the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition's attempts to unionize. That's coming up in today's feature reports. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Artbeat, a segment where Dr. Feliz Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. But first, your daily headlines. On October 21st, at the Monroe County Board of Health meeting, Vice Provost for External Relations for IU Bloomington, Kirk White, shared the effect football games and Hoosier hysteria have had on the rates of COVID-19 in Monroe County. We were concerned about that, and we looked, we've been looking closely because the good part is it's, a, it's an outdoor event, but yet people are pretty close in the stadium. So we were watching after the first couple of home games whether we would see an uptick, and we really haven't. We thought we might also see an uptick uh, after uh, a Hoosier hysteria being an indoor event. But of course, that has the mask requirement, which we appreciate. And uh, uh, though it's sometimes hard to disseminate whether, whether people are eating popcorn or drinking a Coke and have their mask down or not, uh, our event staff has been pretty diligent about trying to keep that enforced, and we uh, we remind people uh, as they come in to the facility at Assembly Hall. But uh, the mask requirement has really been helpful for us. I think uh, indoors, we've not seen an uptick uh, in any of our numbers either after the football games or after Hoosier hysteria. But we also have to remember those bring in large populations from outside the community too. And as you all know, um, when that happens, uh, we have to work pretty hard at reminding people that Monroe County has that mask mandate. And uh, they, they've been fairly respectful about it, but some people just aren't used to it because uh, other parts of the state, uh, they're not thinking about it in the same cautious way that we are. He also said that the students and faculty feel safer in the classroom environment with the mask requirement. Health Director Penny Cottle shared that the Vital Statistics Division had been receiving multiple calls a day concerning confusion about how to receive birth certificates. Vital Records staff met with the baby unit at IU Health to really talk about some of the challenges. Um, people just, some of the new parents seem very, very confused about um, how to get their birth certificate and those kinds of things. So we met with them to do just a little bit of problem solving and have a discussion between us about what their process was, what our process is, and then how we could improve. And one of the things that we did was develop a brochure that they could give at the hospital to all the new parents. 
And that has been printed. They've been using that. And the vital record staff has reported that they really are seeing fewer calls. Vice President President of Operations at Security Pro 24-7, Aaron Waltz, shared that the Department of Health's complaint inspections have been productive overall. Some of the complaint inspections, some of the things we're seeing is um, a lot of times when we go out on the complaint inspections that we get from the health department, um, once we work with them, we see a lot of corrective actions. I would say that most of them, um, not all of them, but most of them do take the corrective actions that we recommend. Uh, that we encourage them to take, whether it be signage, whether it be mask. Um, I know we've handed out masks to certain businesses that say they can't afford it. Um, so the, the the businesses themselves are taking the proper proper actions to correct those things. Um, customers customers are kind of hitting this. Um, obviously, like like uh, Mr. White said, with IU, you get some that you know come come from different areas and different places throughout the state and they don't understand that we do have a mask mandate. So um, a lot of the businesses have done a really good job at reminding folks to put the mask on, wear the mask when when inside, uh, when moving about the restaurant, if not eating or drinking. So we're seeing a lot of good things. The next Board of Health meeting will be on November 18th. At the Monroe County budget hearing on October 19th, the County Council adopted the 2022 budget. County Council member Kathy Wiltz gave an overview of the budget's costs and changes since it was proposed. To reiterate, the council approved an increase to the general fund council but general fund council budget in the amount of $51,944 on Monday, October 18th, 2021. The revised budget for fund 0101 general fund is 40 million eight hundred thirty two thousand two hundred ten dollars the adopted tax levy is twenty million nine hundred fifty nine thousand nine hundred thirty two dollars and the adopted tax rate is twenty five point zero seven cents council member jeff mckim highlighted a few aspects of the budget that he thought the public should be aware of he noted the council funds often go on behind the scenes and wanted the public to have an understanding of what this budget does for them. We're voting on an $87 million budget, and the, the vast majority of it, you know, this is really for, meant for the public. The vast majority of it consists of basic county services that most people don't even notice unless something's not working. You know, county highways, <laughs> the justice system, the process of property assessment and tax collection, stuff that isn't very exciting, but is absolutely essential to our quality of life here. And I know each of us on the county council undoubtedly looks through this budget through a different lens. Uh, And I just wanted to kind of quickly highlight a couple of items that this budget includes that I think are worthy of note. And that I think just kind of shows the, the vast, um, I don't know, spread of things that uh, county government is responsible for. Uh, and each of you might have your own uh, uh, items that you take particularly particular notice of in this budget that are, you may be in favor of or you may be against. Um, but just, you know, some of the things that, that are notable to me, a 4.3% increase for stone belt, life designs, and center stone, um, increases in the cost of management of the justice building in order to provide the contract employees a living wage. Uh, you know, $70,000 increase in the coroner's office for autopsies, things that we do that aren't always fun. 
but are absolutely necessary. Uh, $30,000 investment in a partnership with the BEDC to continue to foster development of local economy, an additional shift of mental health services at the jail, additional investments in county parks, including hourly support, staff support, replacement of 30-year-old soccer goals that are falling apart, funding of a five-year master plan that's necessary to, uh, uh, to, con- to continue to be able to receive grants, and upgrades to a maintenance building that allow our parks equipment to actually be stored securely. Um, also, a- asphalt crack sealing on uh, the Vernal Pike Greenway and other maintenance on our greenways, resulting from the freeze-thaw cycle that's just uh, something that we all live with in Indiana. Um, fully funding the changes that we made last year in the uh, merit deputies contract and raising the salaries of our county police officers to be competitive in the region and uh, fully funding the educational incentive incentives for merit deputies. Council member Marty Hawk said that she supported many parts of the budget. However, she doesn't agree with all of them, so she plans to vote no against the budget. Fully supported and advocated for, uh, not all. Uh, but just about all. Uh, And while I support that, I made it clear that I would not be able, because the way the state has it set up, we vote either on the whole thing up or down. And if there is something there that you simply cannot support, then you have to vote it down. Um, And I've done that before. I did that when I was very much against the uh, purchase of the um, query property. Um, And so uh, for those reasons, and to be very clear, there's money in the county coffers to to provide these $3 million worth of uh, capital items. And indeed, because it's in that rainy day fund, it's it's anticipated to have at least $8 million left at the end of the year. Uh, Those funds really should be used for capital items or one-time type expense, simply because you cannot count on that to uh, make payroll. You can't can't count on that because it's not replenished. Uh, we cannot count on it being replenished as it has in the past. And so um, for those reasons, I just don't want to go to the public and tell them we don't have the $3 million to do these projects. And I cannot support that. The council voted six to one to pass the budget for 2022. The next county council meeting will be on November 9th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Kaya Terra reports on the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition's attempts to unionize. Kayantara has that story.
sit down with us and come up with a better plan to improve our working conditions. That is not acceptable. The sounds you just heard were from the town hall held by the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition on September 23rd. The graduate students at Indiana University in Bloomington have been attempting to form a union for three years now. Calling themselves the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, the group is fighting for better working conditions for graduate students at IU. Their goal is for graduate workers at IU Bloomington's campus to have equitable pay, benefits, and freedom from discrimination. Nora Weber, a fourth-year graduate student in the sociology department, explains that the coalition started about three years ago when a group of students decided that they wanted to represent graduate students as workers. We have a grad and professional student government, and that represents us as students, uh, which is is part of our our dual role on campus. Um, But we are also workers, and so we wanted a body that represents represents us in that role. And so that's what the Grad Coalition does. I got involved with the coalition, I think about two years ago now. Um, I was talking with actually some friends in the sociology department, and, you know, we were talking about the work that we do and uh, just the way that we felt like this wasn't being recognized uh, by the university as as work. Um, and yet we know how much work we put in, in terms of teaching courses, uh, leading labs, doing all the TAing, grading, all sorts of things like that. Nora expresses why she wanted to join the coalition and what her informal role is in the unionization efforts. We don't have a super formal structure, which I really like. Uh, it is very much like a coalition, certainly. So I've been helping out with a lot of sort of communication types things, but also just talking with other grad workers around campus, hearing what they have to say, um, and trying to incorporate that into thinking about, you know, our mission and how we can serve grad workers across campus. At the town hall, one of the founding members of the coalition, Valentina Lucetta, asked graduate students in the crowd to raise their hands if they have faced economic insecurities due to the lack of financial compensation by the university for graduate workers. When it's all said and done, not treated with dignity and respect. So to demonstrate this, join me. How many of you have struggled to pay the rent? How many of you have worried you're not going to have enough money to buy food? How many of you have taken side jobs, stayed up late at night, trying to figure out how to cover all your financial duties? How many of you have sold your plasma? Which, by the way, when we sold that to the Dean Dalaki, he said we still need some proof to show that we are actually at the end of the day selling our bodies, our plasma. Some of us are even participating in sex work, which is an honorable thing to do, but it's something that the graduate students are forced to do in order to survive. How many of you have felt alone, powerless, spent hours devising an email to your course director, afraid that if one misplaced word is there, you're going to somehow lose funding for the next year? How many of you have felt that if you're not quiet and you put your head down and you have to listen to all sorts of things? that you're going to lose that funding you've been promised. I too have felt very, very powerless. And then we founded the Graduate Coalition. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I was not alone. I have also 
that I and all of us together can be quite powerful. IU has a formal policy when a group wishes to work towards unionization, and currently that is what the coalition is working towards. Unionization supports everybody, and I think what's really powerful is um, the, some of the big issues that workers face on campus um, is payment that is not sufficient to meet our base needs. And we will say, well, you know, maybe the university doesn't, you know, doesn't owe you that. Um, I would argue that based on the percent of classes that we're teaching, the amount of money that grad workers bring into the university, that's not a very, that's a, that's a hurtful, <laughs> in addition to untrue uh, sort of assessment of the situation. Nora notes that better conditions for graduate workers also benefits the undergraduate student body at IU. The way it connects to undergrads is when we are able as graduate workers to just focus on our studies and to just focus on our teaching and our lab commitments and our TAing, that's a better experience for the undergrads as well. Nora, as well as others a part of the coalition, do not see this attempt to unionize as working against the IU administration, but instead working with them. By allowing them to unionize, the coalition sees this step as the university acknowledging that graduate students have needs that should be met. We are really would like them to acknowledge, uh, acknowledge the work we do, but also understand that when they are in negotiation with a union, it's much more efficient than having to deal with all of these individual departments and all of these individual um, workers one off, that it just makes a much more efficient process. As a part of their unionization effort, the coalition has five goals that Caitlin Beadler, a fourth-year graduate student in the biology department, explains at the town hall. We have five main things that we're pushing for as a union. Ending the fees, living wage with annual raises, protection and improvement of our benefits, implementation of an effective grievance procedure, and fairness for our international graduate workers. For the past two years, graduate workers at IU have organized, petitioned, marched, and engaged in a historic fee strike. Currently, they need to sign up a majority of graduate workers on union membership cards. Once they have the majority, they will deliver these cards to the IU administration, who will hold a yes or no vote for unionization. For the coalition, winning the union election will show IU that the majority of graduate workers agree with their demands for regular races to end the mandatory fees and for fairness for graduate students at IU. I am optimistic about the future of this. I think it's been, I've talked with a lot of grad workers over, especially over the last year. And while I see a lot of frustration and a lot of difficult situations that people are facing um, and that they're sharing, I also see a lot of solidarity. And I see a lot of people who are committed to the work that they do and committed to the things that they study um, and are also really committed to building a community that is better, not just for themselves, um, but for future generations of grad work at IU. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic, too. I, we have uh, President Witten as the new president of IU. And, um, you know, she has stated that 
diversity on campus is one of her priorities. She stated, you know, that that building, that listening is one of her priorities. And so we are here. We would, you know, love to love to continue and have these conversations with her. For WFHP, this is Kayan Tara. And now it's time for Artbeat, a segment where Dr. Feliz Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. In today's segment, Chichek interviews Professor Joanne Hawkins about an Algerian feminist activist, and we turn to Chichek for more. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Chichek at WFHP. My guest today is Professor Joan Hopkins. She teaches film at Indiana University of Bloomington. Welcome back to Artbeat. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to be here and thank you for having me, especially to promote this particular film. So we're going to be screening a film called Poor Jamila for Jamila on November 11th at the IU Cinema. It's going to be a virtual screening so people can just watch it via Zoom. And the particular reason we're showing the film is that um, I've been convening a reading group with the Center for Theoretical Inquiry in the Humanities, and we've been reading uh, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. And the book that she wrote about this case, about Jamila Bupasha, is the basis for this movie. And so we're seeing the film, our group is seeing the film as part and parcel of this larger Simone de Beauvoir reading group. I think it's a, an important film for everybody to see right now because of everything that's happening in the Middle East. I think that it's an important film for anyone, but also any woman anywhere. Yeah. Because after the independence of uh, Algeria from France, she formed a feminist group in Algeria to try to fight for the equality of women there, which was a bit of a tall order. But I think mm. some of the uh, equality issues exist everywhere. I think that's partly why Simone de Beauvoir was responding to her. What do you think? Yeah. So for people who don't know, Jamila Pupasha, well, she was a member of the National Liberation Front, the Front Liberation Nationale, FLN. It was the group that was fighting for independence within Algeria. And she was accused of planting a bomb in a cafe, which she did not do. And she was picked up. She was arrested at her parents' house. She was tortured. She was raped. And under torture, she confessed to this crime. I'm not clear about how the attorney Giselle Halimi got involved, but Giselle Halimi heard about Jamila's case and she took it upon herself to try to get the verdict reversed because, I mean, Jamila Bupasha was going to be put to death. She was being sentenced to death. So Giselle Halimi formed a committee that would be a kind of a public awareness committee to bring not only this particular case, but also the very nasty business of the French use of torture in Algeria to public attention. The French had been denying for a long time that they used torture. And she asked Giselle Halimi, who was a friend of Simone de Beauvoir, asked Simone de Beauvoir to head that committee, which she did. And, uh, and Simone de Beauvoir ended up writing a book 
called For Jamila, Poor Jamila, which is the book that this film is based on. They were not ultimately successful in getting the conviction reversed, but the Avian Accords, which granted independence to Algeria, were signed in 1962. And so Jamila was freed at that time as being a political prisoner of France. And and so part of the story is just about the torture. It's about the long, long battle of the Algerian people for independence, the terrible French behavior during that war, the fact that French for many years tried to cover up all of their wrongdoing during the war. The, The film that Godard made about it in 1962, Le Petit Soldat, was banned in France. The film Battle of Algiers was also banned in France. Battle of Algiers was made in 66, so four years after Algeria's independence. The attempt on the part of the French government to keep the use of torture a secret was just formidable. And then the other part of it, though, the kind of positive part of it is the fact that these three women, Giselle Halimi, uh, Jamila Bupasha, and Simone Beauvoir remained lifelong friends. And both Halimi and Bupasha continued to work on behalf of women's struggles in North Africa and in the Middle East, and Simone de Beauvoir was lending her support to that. So the, the message of kind of Female solidarity and female friendship is really, really strong in this film. And the colonialism complicates, further complicates, I should say, feminism in the Middle East, because if you do have support of outsiders like Samantha Ward, then Middle Eastern uh, nationalists tend to say, well, she is one with the imperialist. So it makes it harder. And even today, I have heard when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Afghanistan, there is real need for collaboration and sisterhood. Um, and the, but if it comes from the West, because West also, I think, uh, used this issue without always contributing to women's lives, it makes it really difficult. And the fact that for Western feminists, the, the way that we look at the lives of women who are living in the Middle East and in North Africa, you know, as outsiders, unless we happen to be living there with them, but most of the groups that get involved trying to help them, help women, in those areas, we fixate on issues that are not of particular importance to the women themselves. So we become very fixated on the issue of the veil, for example. And, you know, I know I've had conversations with North African women who are just baffled, like, why is this such a big deal to you that we wear the veil? And I've also been in dinners with, with Western feminists who are saying that if any woman anywhere is wearing the veil, that that contributes to the suppression of women everywhere. So there's that issue too, is not only are we historically not in sisterhood with women of color, but also the fact that we fixate on issues that show that we don't really understand very much about their lives and what people there need. So you said that you were reading the book. What are some of the things that prompted you to screen the movie? The book that we're reading for the Center for Theoretical Inquiry for the Humanities is uh, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. The reason that we're reading the book is that a fairly new translation has come out. So it's about 10 years old now, so fairly recently. When the book was first published in English in the 1950s, over 150 pages of text were cut from the book. So the book that my generation grew up reading during the height of second wave feminism was a wildly expurgated and abridged version of this amazing book that Simone de Beauvoir wrote, where she tries to account for the condition of all women kind of in this universal 
brain. And it also was badly translated. So there were philosophical terms that Simone de Beauvoir used that were mistranslated in the English. It was, it was almost like the people who translated couldn't believe that a woman would be using these terms in their appropriate way. And so they made it a lot chattier and a lot easier to read as befitting the kind of philosophy that I think they thought a woman would be writing. So we've been reading The Second Sex. And because one of the issues that comes up for feminists now reading that book is what about non-Western women? What about non-white women? What about the what about the complicity of white women in the oppression of other women? In an attempt to talk about that and talk about that aspect of Beauvoir's work and the fact that she was not insensitive to that, I wanted to give the group sections of um, the book Poor Jamila to read, and also I wanted us to see the film. And also, it was very, you know, there's a bit of self-interest here. I wanted also to um, help uh, advertise the Center for Theoretical Inquiry in the Humanities, because I think people don't always know that we're there, and it's quite a wonderful organization. Well, I didn't know that it was there until this year. So Wow, see? By case in point. <laughs> and you are a theoretically sophisticated woman. So oh, oh, thank you. When is the movie screening at Indiana University Cinema? It is November 11th at 7 p.m. via um, Zoom or Vimeo. Thank you, Professor John Hopkins, for joining me today. Oh, please. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Felice Cicek on WFHB. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHB after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhb.org.